Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back after a long Christmas break. For those of you who may have forgotten or may be joining us for the first time, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel, and we are in Matthew chapter 5, and today we begin at verse 17. The most famous section of Matthew's Gospel, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, and we're at the beginning of it, and Certainly the most famous portion of this most famous section of Matthew's Gospel is the Beatitudes. But it should be noted that the Beatitudes, while they are so familiar to us, are actually only the introduction to this sermon. Um, We are familiar with the Beatitudes where Jesus says such things as, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on and so forth. But actually, that is just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Most good sermons have some sort of an introduction that sort of eases you into the content. And that's what the Beatitudes were designed to do. They were not meant to be an an end in and of themselves. They were meant simply to give us a thumbnail sketch of the kind of person that the rest of this sermon is really for. Uh, The sermon proper does not begin until you get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So just turn there, if you will, and we're going to go ahead and read through uh, the end of verse 20, just three verses today. And you'll discover that it will occupy most of our attention. Jesus writes, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." It is that phrase, the law and the prophets, that Jesus uses here and that he will repeat a couple of chapters later that is referred to by scholars as an inclusio. Now, an inclusio in ancient oratory was a rhetorical device that was used to signal the beginning of a new section or a new idea. In writing, we use a paragraph to do that. A new paragraph signals a new thought or a new argument. Well, in oratory, in the ancient world, they would use a phrase that would normally function as a refrain, and it would bookend this new idea, the beginning of the new idea and the end of the new idea. And that's how we know that this is really the beginning of a new section in the Sermon on the Mount because of the inclusio, the phrase that Jesus uses here, this phrase, the the law and the prophets. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 17, you'll see that Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 5 and skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 12. And When you get to chapter 7, verse 12, you read this. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now that's the inclusio, you see. The law and the prophets at the beginning, and that refrain at the end, the law and the prophets. So as I said, the Beatitudes are really just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. That's not to say that they don't have great substance and importance for us, but they are the introduction. It's not until we get here to chapter 5, verse 17, that Jesus really begins the sermon proper. He begins to unpack what it means to be a citizen or a subject of the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord could have used any number of phrases to signify this inclusio, but he uses this specific one, the law and the prophets. And most scholars believe that that was because it was at this point that Jesus was being attacked the most by his detractors, 
by the scribes and the Pharisees. The argument was being made that Jesus was doing something new. Now, if you were a Jew in the first century, the most important thing for you was the law of God. You were to be obedient to the law and to the prophets. And one of the arguments that the scribes and the Pharisees made against Jesus on the basis of their jealousy was that Jesus was actually undermining the law of the prophets. He was not teaching the law and the prophets. In fact, they would say he was teaching something entirely new. Uh, You can see a little taste of this if you turn to Mark chapter 1. That's the next gospel in line, easy to find, Matthew chapter 1, verse 27. And they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching, and with authority? For he even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So that was the argument that was being made against Jesus. Jesus is producing something that is new. It is a new teaching. It's revolutionary. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, we don't want anything new. What we want is what was revealed to us by the prophets, by Moses, and by the law. And you'll notice that the scribes and the Pharisees were always trying to trick Jesus on the basis of the law and the prophets. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery. And she was brought before Jesus having been caught in the act, and she's thrown before Jesus, and the question that is put to the Lord is this. The law says that this woman deserves to be stoned. But what do you say? (laughs) Now, that was a trick question, and it was a trick question because no matter how Jesus answered it, he was going to be discredited, they thought, in the eyes of the people because Jesus all along had been teaching about grace and mercy, pardon and forgiveness. And yet the law was very explicit about this. Adultery of this fashion was punishable, and it was punishable by death, by stoning. And so on the one hand, if Jesus said, well, I've been talking about grace, mercy, and forgiveness, they knew they had him because they would be able to say, see, this man is no friend of the law. He's no friend of Moses. He doesn't uphold the law, the traditions that have been passed on to us by God. I mean, they knew that Moses was a great prophet chosen by God. See, this man is producing something very different. On the other hand, if Jesus had told them, well, the law is the law, and the law said that she shall be stoned, so therefore go ahead and do it, then they would have had him because they would have said, all this talk about grace, mercy, pardon, and forgiveness, what a hypocrite. So this was always the point of attack when it came to Jesus. They were arguing that this man was no friend of the law, no friend of Moses, no friend of the prophets. He was producing something new, something revolutionary. And when you first look at it, you can almost get the impression that that was true. For example, they accused Jesus on any number of points of violating the Sabbath. Now, every Jew knew that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest and it was to be made holy. It was one of the Ten Commandments, keep holy the Sabbath day. And Jesus was oftentimes accused of violating the Sabbath on one occasion, Matthew chapter 12, Uh, He and his disciples were walking through a field and they began to break off the grains of wheat, the heads of the wheat. And the Pharisees said, that's a violation of the Sabbath and here are your, your followers doing that sort of thing. Now Jesus had an answer to it, but that was one of the charges that was brought against him. On another occasion in John's Gospel, John chapter 5, we're told that Jesus went to the pool at Bethesda there near St. Anne's present-day church today. And there were all of these people who were brought, who were blind, lame, paralyzed, the poor, who believed that this pool had medicinal or healing properties. And every time the water was stirred, that they thought that if they could get into the water, they would be healed. And Jesus was walking, we're told, among the sick on this particular day, and he saw one man at the back of the crowd who was lame, had been lame for years. And Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? And the man said, I do, but every time I try to get into the water, somebody beats me into it. And Jesus said, well, you don't need the water. He said, take up your mat and walk. And immediately the man felt a strengthening in his legs and in his ankles, and he was able to stand and he was able to walk. Now, that was good news for the man, but the minute that the Pharisees found out about it, they wanted to know who had done this. And when he said it was Jesus, they said, well, he's not supposed to be doing that kind of work on the Sabbath. You understand, no work was to be done on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was sacred. 
All of your meals had to be prepared beforehand. All of your clothes had to be laid out the night before. You were not supposed to do any work whatsoever on the Sabbath day. And so this was the charge that was brought against Jesus. Now, once again, Jesus had an answer to them, but this was the charge brought against him. He was accused of a relaxed piety. Uh, He was not a holy man. Uh, They pointed out that the the disciples of John the Baptist were very pious. There were certain foods that they would not touch. They would not have anything to do with strong drink. And yet here was Jesus, this man who ate with sinners and tax collectors. I said, that's a violation of the law of Moses. That's not the piety that is expressed to us in the prophets. Well, that's why Jesus uses this particular phrase as this bookend here in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not here trying to produce anything new. He said, what I've actually come to do is not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus emphasizes his solidarity with the teaching of the law and the teaching of the prophets. What's the Lord really saying here? Well, some have suggested that what Jesus meant by that phrase, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, was that Jesus was the one who perfectly kept the law. That that's what he means. I'm the one who's actually come to do what the law demands. You think that I've relaxed the standard. Actually, I'm the only one who's ever lived who's actually keeping the standard. And there's certainly truth in that. Jesus was the only person who ever kept the law perfectly. He was like us in every respect, the New Testament said, except for one. He was what? Without sin. But I don't think that that's what Jesus means here when he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. I think what Jesus is basically saying is, your problem is that you don't understand how to read the Old Testament. He said, if you had the eyes of faith, if you really had the gift of the Holy Spirit, you would understand that I actually fill up the law and the prophets. Which is to say that the whole of the Old Testament is really about me. That's what Jesus means. I am the one that give meaning to the law and the prophets. All of these things by themselves are actually pointers. They are direction signs to me. Uh, This is one of the things that I've tried to say to you about inspiration, the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The church has for centuries said that what we have here in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testaments, is a divine revelation from God. It is the Word of the Lord. Now, I've said to you that there are basically three views of the Bible in the world today and in the church. The first view is the classic view which is the view that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, and it contains all things necessary to salvation. And it's what we give lip service to every Sunday in church, whether the reading is from the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Isaiah, or whether the reading is from Paul's epistle to the Romans. It doesn't matter. When we get to the end, we don't say a reading from Isaiah or a reading from Paul. We say what? The Word of the Lord. And everybody responds, thanks be to God. The classic view of the church was that the Bible has many writers, but it has one author. And God so superintended the process by the grace of His Holy Spirit that what was ultimately produced, whether it was Isaiah doing the writing or Paul doing the writing, is the Word of the Lord. Now, that view changed slightly, particularly in the later part of the 18th century, in the 19th century, and in through the 20th century, with the rise of German higher criticism in which scholars began to argue that you can't believe that anymore. We are a post-enlightenment people. We know better than that. You cannot believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The best thing that we can say about the Bible is that it is the words of men about God. And it has historical and sociological value. It tells us what people throughout history have perhaps thought about the divine. But you really can't believe that it is a divine word from the Lord. Now, that is the view of liberalism. That is the view of a secular culture. Some churches recognized that that was problematic. (laughs) Because if God does not speak to us anymore, then the church is out of business. And so there were many denominations, I think, in the 20th century uh, that began to argue that what we have in the Bible is really both. It's the words of men and it's the words of God, but you have to discern which is which. Now the question is, how do you do that? 
The obvious answer is, well, you turn it over to the scholars, and they'll tell you which portions are the words of men and which portions are the word of God. The only thing you discover is that the scholars don't agree. So as a Christian, you have to realize that the only real tenable position is the classic position, that this is a word from the Lord. Now, the Bible's really not a book. The Bible's really a library. It contains all kinds of literature. There's history here, there's wisdom literature, there's poetry, but what we believe is that in and through it all, God is speaking in such a way that if we listen with the eyes and the ears of faith, we will be able to see, perceive, and hear and understand the will of God for man. Now that's the idea here. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, the Bible has one author. It has many writers, but it has one author. And not only does it have one author, but because it has one author, it really, ultimately, has one theme. The Bible, from the book of Genesis, the whole way through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, has one theme, and that theme is what? The saving work of God in Christ. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them, that's what he's telling them. He's saying, I am what this book, I am what the law and the prophets are really all about. And the only way for you to understand the scriptures is to understand that in the light of my life, my ministry, my witness, my death, and my resurrection. Now, this is something that the disciples themselves came to realize. It's interesting that in the days following the resurrection, but prior to the ascension, we're told that what did the disciples do? They studied the scriptures. Because all of the sudden, in the light of Jesus' resurrection, his atoning death, and his glorious victory over death, all of the sudden, those Old Testament passages that they had been reading began to take on a whole new meaning. A new lens had been provided for them to understand and to see these things in an entirely new way. And it was almost as though the words were leaping off of the page. This was the key to understanding. Back in the 19th century, when Napoleon invaded Egypt, uh, he took, of course, his army with him, but the army also had a number of scientists with them. And one of the most important things that they discovered when they were in Egypt, as Napoleon was waging a campaign against his enemies, was what was known as the Rosetta Stone. You know what the Rosetta Stone was? It was the key to understanding Egyptian hieroglyphics. Up until that point, nobody could understand Egyptian hieroglyphics. But this stone provided the key to understanding. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the Rosetta Stone. I am the key to understanding what the law and the prophets are really all about. Now, that is an extraordinary claim. One author and one theme. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the Old Testament doctrine, you have to understand the Old Testament doctrine in the light of what I have come to do. Uh, keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to John for just a moment. John chapter 3. Very familiar story, the story of Nicodemus. This Pharisee who comes by night to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God were with him. And Jesus answered him, you know the story, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Verse 9, and Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, you're trained in all of this. You're a biblical scholar. You know the law and the prophets, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of things that we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus takes him back to the Old Testament, and he says, No one who has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who descended from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that last phrase is very important. 
As a teacher of the law, as a biblical scholar, as an expert in the Old Testament, and as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to. That whole story about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, where did that come from? It came from the book of Numbers. And it was from a period in Israel's history when they were wandering in the wilderness. They had been led out of their captivity in Egypt, but they were wandering in the wilderness. And at various points during those wanderings, they began to complain. They began to gripe. They began to moan. They began to argue that they did not like to be out there, that they felt that Moses had led them out there to die. And of course, that was not the case. One of the reasons they continued to wander out there in the wilderness was because of their own sin. But God decided to discipline his people, and the story, it's found there in that book of Numbers, is that God sends a brood, this is the way it's described, a brood of fiery serpents into the Israelite camp. Venomous snakes. And these snakes began to bite the people, and the people began to perish. And Moses realizes that the people might be possibly wiped off the face of the earth, a people that were supposed to be God's instrument for the transformation of the world. And so Moses goes and he appeals to the Lord, don't ruin your people, spare your people, provide for them an antidote. And God said, all right, here's what you're to do, Moses. I want you to make a serpent out of bronze, and I want you to erect it in the middle of the camp. And anyone who looks to the serpent and believes in its healing power will be saved. Now, you can just imagine what Moses said. And what else do I have to do? And the Lord says... That's the only thing you have to do. Now, we all know that a bronze serpent on a pole has no medicinal value whatsoever, but that was not the point. The point was that the people needed to be saved, and God had provided a means, and the means looked foolish to them, but it was the only means of their deliverance. Incidentally, that serpent on the pole is the caduceus. It's the symbol for the American Medical Association today. That's the idea. And so the people, when they looked at that serpent on the pole, the means by which God had promised to deliver them, they were saved. Well, Jesus is saying here, that's what I'm all about. That's really, that, that story in the book of Numbers is pointing to me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, one day I am going to be lifted up upon a cross. And to the world, it's going to look like foolishness. It looks like foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who believe, it is what? The power of God to salvation. So that's what Jesus means when he says, the law and the prophets point to me. That story from the book of Numbers, that, that's about me. It's not just about Israel. It's about the new Israel. It's not just about a serpent on a pool. It's about the Son of God on a cross. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he does that by fulfilling Old Testament doctrine, the doctrine of atonement. He fulfills Old Testament predictive prophecy. Uh, you'll recall, since it's just been Christmas and Epiphany, that when the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem to inquire as to where the babe had been born, what did Herod do? Herod immediately summoned all of his religious advisors, all of his theologians, all of his biblical scholars, and he said, tell me, is there a prophecy that speaks of a new king coming to Israel? And they said, there is. And he said, well, where is this king to be born? And they said, well, the book of the prophet Micah says that he is to be born where? In Bethlehem of Judea. That even though you are least of the princes of Israel, out of you, shall come one who is to be the Savior, the Redeemer of my people. Well, where was Jesus born? <laughs> he was born in great humility. He was born in great obscurity. But he was born where? In, of all places, Bethlehem of Judea. God had so superintended the process that he even used a Roman census to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. And perhaps the most powerful Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus Christ is found in the book of Isaiah. So turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. Now Isaiah chapter 53, mind you, was written centuries, centuries before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, before he was ever born in Bethlehem, let alone crucified on that hill outside of Jerusalem. And yet, Isaiah chapter 53 describes someone who would come. And I want you to listen carefully to these words. 
The prophet writes, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now who's that a picture of in Isaiah chapter 53? Well, I can't get into the mind of Isaiah. It's impossible to say. What we do know, with the advantage of hindsight, in and through the life of Jesus, is that that is a picture of the Lord. That is exactly what He had come to do. Written centuries, centuries before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. As I said, centuries before He was born, let alone died. And you can see now, in the, in, in the wake of the, the death on the cross and the resurrection, how the disciples are going back and reading these passages that they didn't understand in the past, all of a sudden they read Isaiah and they say, well, look, that's, that's Jesus. That's a, that's a picture of the Lord. And they understand that all of these passages in the Old Testament, when they think about that story from the book of Numbers and Moses lifting up that serpent on the, on the, on the pole and how Jesus was lifted up, all of a sudden that takes on new meaning for them, you see. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, or at least your interpretation of it. Jesus is saying, I have come to give meaning to these things. I am the Rosetta Stone, the key to understanding what the Old Testament law and prophets are really all about. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament doctrine. He fulfills its predictive prophecy. I think he also fulfills its ethical precepts. That is to say, he did keep the law. No one has kept the law. Isaiah says it here. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And yet Jesus did. He came as the great high priest, like us in every respect, tempted in every way that you have been tempted. He was like us in every respect except for one. He did not sin. He did not sin. So that's what it means when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. Now, there is a lot that we could say about this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to belabor the point because I've already done a lecture on the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to go back and get the detailed description of all of this, you can go back and listen to those lectures. I want to focus on something slightly different today. I want to focus on what I regard as the critical issue, and Jesus addresses it here in this section before us today. And the critical issue really is the authority of the Bible. That's what Jesus is bearing witness to here. He's saying, yes, the law and the prophets are about me. But what he's also doing is he is giving an indication that he regards the law and the prophets as what? Being authoritative 
for our lives. He goes on to say this in the very next verse. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, do you think that I've come to teach something new? No, I've come to tell you what the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are really all about. And furthermore, I believe in the authority of the word, so much so that not one jot, not one tittle, not one iota, not one dot will in any way pass until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I believe in the authority of the Bible. Absolutely. And that's important for us as Christians because I think this is the real issue in our world today. As you've heard me say many times before, the real problem in the church today is not human sexuality. And I know that that's the thing that we hear so much about these days. I think we are living in a culture in which we're absolutely obsessed with human sexuality. Now we've got sex on the brain, which if you think about it is a rather odd place to have it. <laughs> we are obsessed with these things, but that's not the issue facing the church. That is a side issue. It's a symptom. It's really a red herring. The real issue before the church is a question of authority. What is the authority for the life of the individual believer, the individual Christian? We all live under some authority, my friends. We are all subject to authority. None of us is free of that. Now, you may see the bumper sticker that says, question authority. I, that bumper sticker has always been curious to me. Have you ever seen that? Question authority. It doesn't say question legitimate authority or illegitimate authority or bad authority or corrupt authority. It simply says question authority. But you see, we all live under authority, don't we? Nobody is a free agent, ultimately. You go out and you break the law, and let me tell you something, you're going to pay for it. There's a wonderful story from the American Revolution. In 1775, uh, the Americans, under the joint command of Benedict Arnold, prior to his betrayal, and a man by the name of Ethan Allen, attacked a fort in upstate New York called Fort Ticonderoga. If you know your history, you know the story. The attack was made in the evening at dark. The Americans completely surprised the British garrison. There was only one sentry on guard that night, and they took him prisoner. And they said they could see Ethan Allen, who was kind of a rough-hewn fellow, kind of a tough old bird, striding across the parade ground. He had drawn his sword, and he was looking for the officer's quarters. And he found the officer's quarter, and he found the, the quarters of the commanding officer, Captain William Delaplace. And he went up, and he started banging on the door, banging on the door. Well, Delaplace was in a dead sleep. He, as I said, he was completely taken by surprise. There was this dim light that came on in the room, and the door opened a crack. And Delaplace stood there in nothing but his dignity. <laughs> and Ethan Allen smiled at the situation, and then he bellowed out, I demand the surrender of this fort. Now, Delaplace was just still waking up. His brain was fuzzy, and he said, what? And Ethan Allen bellowed back, I demand the surrender of this fort. And Delaplace stumbled around, and he said, well, by whose authority? And Ethan Allen yelled back, by the authority of the great God Jehovah and the Continental Congress. <laughs> and with that, the sword was handed over, and the fort passed to the Americans. You see, authority is the issue. It's the authority for us. It's the authority for your life. What is it? Well, Jesus is testifying here to the authority of the Word of God by saying that not one yod, not one iota. Now, what is a yod? Well, a yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The iota, that's the proper way of pronouncing it, we say iota, is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying not the smallest letter. He says not one tittle, 
What is a tittle? A tittle was a comma or a serif that was used as an accent. He said, not even the slightest stroke of the pen is in any way going to pass from the scriptures until all of this is fulfilled. And anyone who would seek to alter the word of God will be under the judgment of God. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. And that's why I say this is precisely the point of attack in the world today when it comes to the church. For the liberal churches, they lost their competence in the authority and the trustworthiness of the Bible. They just did. That was the problem, I'm sorry to say, for the Episcopal Church. It lost its confidence in the Word of God. And as a consequence, it really didn't have anything to offer to the world. And that's the reason it's been on the slow decline and picking up speed. And that's the reason for many of the mainline denominations, they lost their confidence in the authority in the trustworthiness of the Bible. They have nothing to offer. There is no word from the Lord, you see. But now, I don't think that's the problem for us. That may be the problem for some of the mainline denominations, but as I said, they're on the downhill slope. I think the problem for the conservative churches, and we have our problems too when it comes to the Bible, our problem is not with the issue of authority or even the trustworthiness of the Bible, I think the problem for us today is slightly different. The problem for us is the sufficiency of the Bible. That is to say, if you ask most conservative Christians today, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Unlike the liberals, they're probably going to say, yes, I do. But our problem is, we don't believe that the Bible is enough. It is the Word of God, it contains all things necessary to salvation, but unfortunately we don't believe that the Bible is enough to do the work of the church. So for the liberals, the problem is a matter of authority and trustworthiness. <coughs> Excuse me. Which is ironic because as archaeology and linguistics have advanced over the course of the centuries, what we have come to see is that the Bible is a very trustworthy book, certainly as a, as a written in historical record. In fact, it's been pointed out that the Bible is probably the most trustworthy book of antiquity. There's only one other book that even comes close to the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, and that's a history of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and we have less than a dozen copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, all of them written about 300 years after the event itself. We have thousands upon thousands of ancient documents from the New Testament. I'll just tell you a little story of how this has worked, incidentally. The Gospel of John, as you know, the fourth Gospel, is unique. Uh, it's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels are referred to as the synoptics. That's because they're very similar. They contain a lot of the same phraseology. Uh, many people believe that they come from a common source. The Gospel of John, however, is very different. All you have to do is read the introduction, the prolegomena to John's Gospel, to realize that it employs Greek philosophical thought. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that is Greek philosophical thought. The, the term that is translated as word there is the Greek word logos. Uh, there was an early Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclides, and Heraclides was the one who said that the world was in a constant state of flux. It was ever-changing. Uh, he was the one that said, if you step into a river and you step back out of it and step back into it again, it's a different river. One of his students asked him one day, they said, well, if that is the case, if the universe is always changing, ever transforming, what is it that holds things together? There seems to be change in the universe, but it appears to be an ordered change. What accounts for that? And Heraclides said, there is a word. There is a logos. There is a word that governs the change. Now, he didn't understand what that word was. But what John did was he took that Greek philosophical idea and he applied it to Christian theology. He said, in the beginning was the word, that which governs all the change, that creates all things, and that word was with God, and that word what? Was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. See, that's what he does. He takes that Greek philosophical thought. Well, scholars in the 20th century argued that that sort of Greek philosophical thought was not employed by Jews in the first century. 
And so this whole idea of the logos and so forth and the authorship of John was called into question. The argument was made that the Gospel of John could not have been an eyewitness account from the first century like the other three Gospels. It must have come from much later when the influence of Hellenism, the influence of the Greeks, came into Israeli or, or Jewish thought. That, that was the idea. So you can't trust the Gospel of John. It's a second century, late second century document. Throw it out. You can perhaps trust Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but don't worry about John. It's too bizarre. Well, everything changed in 1946 when there was a young boy down on the Sinai Peninsula, and he was a shepherd, and he was doing what little boys do when they're bored, making mischief. And he saw a number of caves up there in an area near what was known as Qumran, near the Dead Sea, and he picked up those stones and he threw them into the caves, and all of a sudden he heard a crash, something like a crashing of of glass, and he climbed up there, and what he found were all of these stone jars that had been perfectly preserved from the first century, really. Um, they were portions of a community there, um, the Qumran community. They were basically ascetics, uh, first century monks for the most part. And all of a sudden, they discovered, just south of Jerusalem, an entire community of nonconformist Jews from the time of Jesus that employed, listen to this Greek philosophical thought. They were using the term logos. Now that pushed the Gospel of John way back, or at least the potential for the Gospel of John way back. And then there was something that was even more exciting than that. Back in the 1950s, um, they were doing work on a mummy that had been found in Alexandria, Egypt. And the mummy uh, was wrapped in all of these linen cloths, but uh, you know that sometimes, you know, that's the way they did things in Egypt with, with mummies and so forth. And uh, every now and then you would find things that would be wrapped within the wrappings of a mummy that were precious to the person. And as they were unwrapping this mummy at the University of Manchester in England, they came across portions of parchment. Now they were fragmented, but the scholar began to read through them and the words sounded familiar to him. And you know what they were? They were words from the first chapter of John's Gospel. And he turned them over and he found more words from John's Gospel. Now what they knew was that this mummy dated from the early, first decade probably, of the second century. Scholars had been arguing all along that the Gospel of John had to come from the late second century. Now we know as a result of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1946, that this community of nonconformist Jews lived just south of Jerusalem in the first century. We know that the Gospel of John was produced probably there, which meant that the Gospel of John had to be created there, it was distributed, eventually found itself down to Egypt, was used by a worshiping community there, and then somehow found its way into the wrappings of a mummy, and all by the beginning of the second century. And that turned scholarship on its head. All of a sudden, the scholars who had been arguing that the Gospel of John was the latest of the Gospels began to argue that perhaps it was the earliest of the Gospels. That perhaps it was unique because it was the first of the Gospels. And that just goes to show you what happens. Another example is there is a king of Assyria mentioned in the Old Testament. His name was Tiglath-Pileser. Now, scholars argued for, for decades that there was no such king, that this king was made up, um, that the biblical account simply made him up. They had lists of the kings of Assyria. There was no Tiglath-Pileser at all. And then, back in the 1960s, they were digging in and around one of these ancient Assyrian cities, and they began to uncover bricks from the time period that the Bible mentioned. And here was the most amazing things. All of those bricks had the king's name stamped on them. And guess what name was stamped on every single brick that they discovered? Tiglath-Pileser. Now that is just evidence, you see, of the trustworthiness of the Bible. And so you have good reason to stand on the trustworthiness and the historical reliability of the Bible. 
I think the problem for us today is not so much the authority and trustworthiness of the Bible. As I said, the problem for us in the evangelical conservative churches is the sufficiency of the Bible. If you ask most evangelicals today, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. Do you believe that it is divinely inspired? Yes. Do you believe that it is sufficient for all the tasks that the church has to do? Well, I'm not so sure about that. We now somehow believe that if we are going to do the church's work, it has to be done in the world's way. And this is particularly true in an entertainment culture. How many of you remember the three great news anchors, Walter Cronkite, David Brinkley, John Chancellor? Remember those fellows? How different the news is today from a group of men who would simply report the news, just the facts, ma'am, to what it has become today with all of these pundits and all of these people and Fox and friends and we all get together and we debate and so much of it is turned into what? Entertainment. Well, do you think the President of the United States has lied? Well, quite frankly, it doesn't matter if he did or not, does it? That's not the question. The question is not, do I think the President lied? The question is, did he lie? We're not interested in the facts anymore. We're interested in opinion polls. That's, that's what we've got in the news today. Think about education. I, I almost decided not to bring this one up. And I'll tell you why I did, because what I'm about to say is likely to get me thrown out of St. Philip's, out of Charleston, and maybe even out of the state of South Carolina. I have a friend uh, in Beaufort who was sending me all of these things in the, wakes of, in the wake of Clemson's victory the other night. See why I'm in trouble already, I'm talking about <laughs> Clemson football. And um, I really don't have a dog in this fight. I have a son who's first-year law student at Carolina, but people say, well, that doesn't matter. Um, so I really don't have a dog in the fight. None of my children went to Clemson or Carolina, so it doesn't really make a difference to me. But he was sending me all of this stuff about Dabo, Dabo Sweeney, who is the coach for Clemson, and uh, won this great victory, and pointing out that he was a great Christian, and he was very devout, and he gave the glory to God, and isn't this wonderful? And I thought, well, that's, it's very interesting. Everybody's very intrigued by this fellow. And so I decided to do a little bit of reading about it. I really didn't know much about Dabo. And so born in Alabama. Okay. Well, can't help where you're born, I guess. But at any rate, <laughs> I decided to do a little research on this fellow to figure out who he was and what he did. And one of the things that I discovered was how much he makes. How many of you know how much Dabo Swinney makes a year? How much? It's not $4 million. It's not $2 million. His base salary, I'm giving it to you. You don't have to guess. His base salary is $6 million. And he just received a $1.5 million signing bonus. Plus, for every bull game he wins and for this championship, he gets $250,000 per victory on top of that. All right, now that, that, that's, that, those are just the facts. Okay. <laughs> so let me, so then I thought, wow, that, that is impressive. I'm in the wrong business here. <laughs> I thought, I am going to see how much the president of Clemson University makes. I mean, the guy that's in charge of the whole school. I mean, if, if the football coach is making 7.5 million, how much is the president of the university making? How much do you think the president of the university makes? The president of the university makes, I'm giving it to you, $750,000 a year. The president, it may be too much, but compared to the football coach, I want you to understand that the president of the university who's responsible for the running of the entire school makes $750,000, and the football coach makes 10 times that. Now, what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that the most important thing is entertainment in our culture. Now, now, I told that to my son, and we got into a debate about that. And immediately, he turned around. He was wearing his Clemson jersey. And I said, he said, now, Dad, you don't understand how much money that football program be, brings into the university. He said, that's what makes it possible for them to do the research. That's what makes it possible for them to build a new library and so forth. All of which is probably true. And I am 
But, but, I just want you to think about it. What that means is that in order to do the work of education, we have to first do the work of entertainment. Well, that's just a fact, folks. In order to do the work of education, we have to do the work of entertainment. So the football coach will get paid $7 million. A researcher who is trying to find the cure for cancer is going to make $75,000. Now, that is not meant to be in any way an attack on Dabo Swinney. He does his job well, obviously. I'm just saying something is a little lopsided about that picture. Something is a little wonky there. But you see, that's the kind of culture in which we live. How much money does the President of the United States make? Well, what's his salary? Anybody know? No, no, no. Well, this President, yes, but I, this salary. But what, what is the salary that a President makes? $400,000 a year. President makes $400,000 a year. How much does your average movie star make? Millions and millions. Or your average NBA star. Or your, your average, you know, National Baseball League player. See, we realize that we are living in an entertainment culture. And in order to do education, we have to entertain. In order to get people interested in the news, we have to entertain. Unfortunately, this has had a trickle-down effect when it comes to religion as well. Many people think that if we're going to do religion and the work of the church, what we have to do is we have to entertain people. As one of my friends said, the problem is this. Innovation leads to standardization, and standardization leads to fossilization. And the church can never be fossilized. And so what are we trying to do? We are constantly trying to be innovative. What we're willing to say is that the Bible is the Word of God, it's trustworthy, it's authoritative, it's just not sufficient. If you're going to do the work of evangelism, it's got to be the Bible, yes, plus. See, that's the way we operate. I know you want to challenge me, but just hold on until I get through this section. <laughs> that's what we think. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn for just a moment to 2 Timothy. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. You talk about words of the Bible speaking to us today and being a description of where we are. This hard to find anything that is more obvious than what we find here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now Paul is writing to his young friend Timothy, who is the leader of the church in Ephesus, and he says this, but understand this, that in the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, these are words, incidentally, you ought to underline in your Bibles, because these, these are important words. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good. They will be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, Paul begins by saying, understand that in the last days, there will come times of difficulties. Now, what does he mean by the last days? Well, the Bible uses that expression, the last days, in two ways. Sometimes it's a reference to the very last days, the days just prior to the Lord's return in glory. But sometimes that expression, the last days, is simply a reference to that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and His return in glory, however long that period may be. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what does Paul mean here? Does he mean in the last of the last days or just in the last days? I think by virtue of the fact that he's writing to Timothy in the first century, he's probably referring to that, that idea of that whole period of time between his ascension and his return in glory. I think that's what he means. But whether it's the last days or the last last days, that's a depiction of our days, isn't it? Is that not a picture of where we are? Is that not a picture of 21st century American culture? For people will be lovers of self. We probably never lived in a more narcissistic age than we do today. The very idea that people take selfies and have selfie sticks 
is indicative of the fact that we live in a narcissistic age. It's the new narcissism. Time Magazine had a, a cover story some years ago called The New Narcissism. Lovers of money. How do you know if somebody's successful? By how much money they make? Proud, arrogant. We use the word pride and arrogance as though it's a good thing. The Bible says pride goeth before the fall. We have pride parades. We're proud. We're arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Anybody experience that at any point in your ungrateful? unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Boy, that's a picture of Washington, D.C., isn't it? Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal, not loving the good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's one of the most damning things of all. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, that's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I want you to understand, Timothy, that is the world in which you are called to minister. Now, Timothy probably read that portion of the letter, and he thought to himself, okay, that's the bad news. What's the good news? You're, you're passing the baton on to me, Paul. I've got a job to do. In that kind of a culture, give me some advice. You're the elder statesman. I, I'm the young person being mentored, tell me, what should I do in order to minister the gospel in that kind of a culture? And you would think that Paul would say, well, I'm going to tell you, in that kind of a culture, you've got to start entertaining people. You've got to put on a show. I know of a church in Pennsylvania that they had a beautiful white sanctuary. They got a new pastor. Uh, he felt that the best way to grow the church was to go in a very contemporary direction. And I don't necessarily have any problem with contemporary music. But he really believed that the best way to go was in a contemporary direction. They painted the entire sanctuary up front black. And they brought in fog machines. And they had a rock band. And they had lights going. And you walked in there, and I had to go, because I was with a family member. And it was like being in a rock concert. Now, that is an attempt to do what? Now, the attitude is, well, you've got to get them in the door, then you can feed them. But there is a sense in which what you win them with is ultimately what you win them to. So, Timothy's saying, all right, Paul, that's the bad news. What's the good news? What should I do? What's in your bag of tricks, Paul? Paul says, here's my advice to you. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that's a hard message for people who are lovers of pleasure to hear. While all evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, here's what you do. Here's my advice to you. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. In that kind of an environment, what are we supposed to do? Remember what we have been taught. We are to be faithful to the Holy Scriptures because they are the what? The Word of God. Breathed out is the expression that Paul uses here. The old King James Version said inspired. But this is a much better translation. Breathed out by God. The Greek is theopneustos. Theo, God. Pneustos. It's the word from which we get pneumonia. Pneumatic. The breath of God. The spirit of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. How are you supposed to do evangelism? Not the world's ways, Timothy. 
The way you do evangelism is by pouring out the Word of God like water and trusting that the Holy Spirit will turn it into wine. There is nothing that is more needed in the church today than an expositional preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We cannot fall into the trap of trying to do the church's work the world's way. And that's what Jesus is saying. So the problem for us, you see, is, is not that we doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible. Oh, we know it's the Word of God. We just don't think it's sufficient to do the task. But Paul is telling Timothy it is sufficient to do the task. Jesus said precisely the same thing. I'm running out of time, but just turn to Mark for just a minute, and then I'm going to let somebody challenge me about Dabo Sweeney. <laughs> but just turn for just a moment to Mark chapter 1. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. We're talking about Jesus' ministry here, and I want you to notice how it begins. Mark chapter 1. And I had hoped to get through a lot more of this. We're going to have to wait till next week. But Mark chapter 1. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now that's what Jesus came proclaiming in the world. What? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that is change direction, and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. Now that actually says a lot. It's in shorthand, but that actually says a lot about Jesus' message. That's what he came to proclaim. That's what he came as he began his ministry proclaiming. Now skip ahead to verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Well, what was he teaching? The very thing that we just heard about in verse 14, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that they were to repent and believe the gospel. That's what he was teaching. And look at verse 22, and they were all astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. So Jesus came teaching the word of God. They were astonished by the teaching of the word of God. Now, while he's there in Capernaum, skip ahead to verse 29, we have this story. And immediately he left the synagogue where he'd been teaching, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So here's the situation. Jesus begins his ministry. What is his ministry? The beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Preaching the word of the Lord, isn't it? That's what it's all about. He goes through the various villages preaching that the time is fulfilled, that people need to repent, they need to believe the Gospel. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. He goes out of the synagogue. Somebody comes up to him and they say, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. He goes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Why? Because he could and because he had compassion. But the result of the miracle is what? All of a sudden, people get the word. There's a miracle worker. There's somebody who can heal people. And they are lining up at the door. And the next morning, when the disciples get up and the crowds are back, waiting for a miracle, they go looking for Jesus and he's nowhere to be found. And they say, well, where is Jesus? And somebody says, well, he's probably praying. Probably James had said that. He's praying. And Peter said, well, there's no time for prayer. <laughs> and they go out and they find Jesus. And you have to read it this way. They turn to Jesus and they said, what are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. 
get back down there and do the work you have come to do. Namely, get on with this business of doing miracles. And Jesus says, that's right, let's get on with the work I've come to do. Let us go on to the next town that I may what? Preach there also. He doesn't say that I might perform miracles. Now, you can imagine where the disciples were coming with this. They were saying, no, 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 no teaching. Yeah, you were teaching in the synagogue. Yeah, people were impressed with your oratory and your skills and all of that. But you had about 33 people. Now we got hundreds. This is how you do ministry. And Jesus said, no, that's not how you do it. You don't do it by wowing people, by signs and wonders. You do it by the power of the word of God. It is the word of the Lord that God promises to bless. Now, sometimes he will bless the word of the preacher, for which I am truly grateful. <laughs> he sometimes blesses the music in church, for which we are truly grateful. But the only thing that God promises to bless that will never come back void or empty is his word. And whenever we get to the point where that is no longer a priority, then the church is trying to do its work the world's ways, and you will get the world's results. And that's what Jesus was telling them. Stick to the word. Read it. Mark it. Learn it. Inwardly digest it. It is the word of God unto salvation. Now, as I said, I had a lot more to say. Surprise, surprise. When we come back, we're going to take a look at not only is the Word of God sufficient to the task of evangelism, it is also sufficient to the task of sanctification. We are called to be holy people. It's only the Word of God that can make us holy. It is, don't read that, <laughs> sufficient to the task of knowing the will of God. What does God want for my life? How am I going to find out? The only way you will know is through the Word of God. And ultimately, it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that is sufficient for social reform. As Chuck Colson once said, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. We tend to think that that's the way you change the world. But there's only one way to change the world. And that is through the proclamation of the Word of God, a Word that transforms hearts and by the power of the Holy Spirit raises those dead in their trespasses and in their sins to the new life of grace. We can never lose our confidence in the Word of God. It is the most holy relic given to us on earth, not a dead letter. It is a living Word. And as long as I am here, I promise you, that is going to be the focus of everything we do. Let us pray, and then I'll let Todd give it to me. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us in the dark. We thank you that not one jot, not one tittle, not one iota, not one stroke of the pen will in any way pass from your word until all is fulfilled. And we thank you that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, we can see that all of this is about your Son, Jesus Christ. Some have said, Lord, that the danger is to worship the Bible rather than the Lord of the Bible. But the reality is this, if we honor your word, we are honoring you. If we dishonor your word, we dishonor you. So grant us the grace to be a people of the book. Help us to read, mark, learn, inwardly digest it that it may work its wondrous work in our life for the praise of your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.